Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Natasha Lester is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of historical fiction, a master storyteller who loves nothing better than creating strong, daring, and enigmatic women. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and Natasha talks about the remarkable true-life stories of the women who underlie her dual timeline romances in the latest binge-reading episode, women like Catherine Dior, sister of her much more famous brother, Christian Dior, the fashion designer. Catherine was a French resistance worker during World War II. We've got three ebook copies of Natasha's latest World War II thriller, The Paris Secret, to give away to three lucky readers. Details of how to enter the draw and to find out all the other stuff we have about Natasha on the website thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. And also on the website, links to everything we talk about today and details about how to subscribe so you'll never have to be without a great book you can't put down. Leave us a comment as well. We love to hear from our readers. But now, here's Natasha. Hello there, Natasha, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. But was there a once upon a time moment, some epiphany, when you decided, I really do want to write fiction, and if I don't do it, I'll have left something undone that's very important to me? And if so, what was the catalyst? Well, I did always want to be a writer. When I was young, I wrote all the time. My mum has various samples of books and poems and stories that I wrote right from the time that I learned to write, right through my childhood and adolescence. But I guess the thing that stopped me from becoming a writer at that time was that I didn't know how to become a writer. When I left high school, there weren't creative writing degrees available at university. And so I didn't understand how I could become a writer other than to just sit down and write. And I didn't know how to do that. So I I didn't kind of take the plunge back then. I, in fact, did a commerce degree at university and I worked in marketing for about 10 or 12 years ended up in Melbourne working for L'Oreal Paris as marketing manager for the Maybelline brand of cosmetics, which was a lot of fun for a woman in her 20s. I had lots of lipstick, more than I could ever have worn in my lifetime. But then I, we had to come back to Perth. My husband had come to Melbourne with me for my job and then he had to come back to Perth for his job. And so it meant quitting my job at L'Oreal and I guess suddenly this moment of opportunity sort of opened up for me where I didn't have a job. I could do something different if I just took the plunge. And so I did take the plunge rather than getting another job back in Perth. I actually went back to university and I enrolled in a creative writing degree because they existed then. And that was the moment I wanted to find out whether, you know, I had this dream of being a writer, but was I actually any good at being a writer? And also would I actually enjoy it? And 
doing a university degree helped me to work out the answer to both of those things, which was thankfully a resounding yes. So I guess that was the moment where it all began to happen for me. That's wonderful. And you have enjoyed great success. You most definitely have proven that you do have what it takes. You've been making the New York Times bestseller list with a number of your books. How did you decide to to write in this particular niche that you are enjoying big success in, the historical fiction genre? How did you make that decision? It was a little bit of an accident. I always wish when I answer these questions, I could sound as if I was more organised than I actually am. But I do think sometimes your subconscious maybe directs you to where you ought to go. I published two books early on that were contemporary fiction, so they weren't historical. And then after that, I wrote a third book in a similar vein to those two, which was contemporary fiction. And I didn't enjoy the writing process in that book. I would kind of get to my desk every day and feel like, oh, gosh, I've got to sit down and write this book again. And I made myself get to the end of the first draft because I like to finish something when I start it. But I knew when I got there that it was a book that I didn't really like. It wasn't working. I didn't know how to fix it. And most importantly, I didn't actually want to fix it. I didn't have the urge to make it better. And so I actually threw the entire first draft, 85,000 words, into the bin. And then I sat down in a chair in my study and sulked a little bit. But also, and this was the important thing, I pulled off my bookshelves, all of my favourite books, and I sat and I reread all of those for about a month. And in doing that, I realised that so many of them were historical fiction. And, and I guess I'd always loved historical fiction, but I'd never really thought about the fact that I did um, love it probably above all other genres. And so I'd had an idea bubbling away in the back of my mind for some time, which was to do with a historical storyline about a woman trying to become one of the first female obstetricians in 1920s New York. And I'd ignored it because it was so completely unrelated to all the other contemporary novels I've published. But that process of failing at that manuscript, sitting in a chair and reading those books gave me the courage to try. And so I sat down, started to write this story, which eventually became my first historical novel, A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald. And I just loved every minute of that writing process. It was so much fun. I truly enjoyed it. I couldn't wait to get to my desk and start writing. And it was then, I guess, that I realised that was what I was meant to do. It just took me a little while to get there. Great. Look, the one that you've got most recently published is The Paris Secret. I think that's just out earlier this year, wasn't it? Yes, that's right, at the end of March. And that combines two very fascinating story worlds. You've got the World War II espionage scene and Paris high fashion, particularly the House of Dior. And I noticed that in some of your other books too, you have a great moulding of both fictional and non-fictional elements. The Dior element is is a great part of the non-fictional element. Tell us how you develop that interest in combining the historical and the contemporary in a way that makes it really come alive. I think that, I mean, again, I did this a bit by accident. (laughs) Again, I wish I could say that all of these things were, you know, planned ideas, but they weren't. I was writing The Paris Seamstress, so that was a book that came out in 2018 and 
that began as purely an historical novel. And I wrote myself into something of a corner. I had the historical storyline unfold and there was this kind of mystery in the storyline. And then I got to a certain point in the story where literally all my characters were poised, um, you know, on their cliffhangers and I didn't know what to do with them. I couldn't work out how to resolve the mystery, how to get them down off their cliffhangers and wrap the story up. And it took me actually a good month or so to work that out. And it wasn't until I, this very random story, I flew to Adelaide for a conference and on the aeroplane I watched a documentary about Tiffany & Co, the jewellery store. And um, then in my hotel room that night I suddenly had this vision unspooling before me of a contemporary storyline involving the main character Estella who was in the historical storyline her granddaughter she'd never had a granddaughter up until that moment in time and there was this connection to Tiffany the jewelry store which obviously had come from me watching this documentary and I realized at 3am in my Adelaide hotel room that actually including a contemporary storyline into the novel would solve all of my problems I'd be able to get all my characters down off their cliffhangers and tie the story up and so I luckily my publisher was in Adelaide with me and I had breakfast with her the next day and ran the idea past her of turning the book into a dual narrative and she thought it sounded like a great idea so I just went ahead and did it and luckily it worked out and readers seemed to really like that blending of historical and contemporary and so I have done that kind of ever since with my books because I really like the way in which you can show how the legacy of something like war continues on for decades afterwards and affects people in ways that you would never know um, until you kind of start digging under the surface. Yes, yes. and it's interesting that there's quite strong parallels in the storylines, it sounds, between The Paris Seamstress and The Paris Secret. In that one, you've got a Sydney conservator, Kat Jordan, a contemporary character, who discovers a mysterious cache of Dior dresses in her grandmother's wardrobe. And the story actually very lovingly details the Dior dresses. I wondered if Dior was already a passion of yours before you started writing the book. Oh, absolutely. I've always adored Christian Dior's gowns. I mean, he was one of, there's probably only been a couple of designers who have utterly transformed fashion and he was definitely one of them. And so being a lover of fashion history anyway, Dior has always been someone whose clothes I have absolutely adored. And, in fact, the reason, though, that Christian Dior came into the book was because I actually wanted to write about Catherine Dior, his sister. She was the initial inspiration for the book. And so as I realised that she was going to be a character in the book and what a fascinating um, backstory she had, then the Christian Dior link kind of popped in. It's probably the only time Christian's ever played second fiddle in his life, but he certainly did in my thinking of the book. He came second after Catherine. <laughs> yes. Now, her story seems to have come to the fore a little bit more in recent years. I must admit, I didn't know anything about it until I read your book, but she was a member of the French Resistance and she got put into Ravenbrook, the concentration camp that they took female prisoners to towards the end of the war. When did you first become aware of her involvement in, in that war? I read about Catherine Dior in a book called Les Parisiennes by a, an historian called Anne Seba, and it's a wonderful 
book about the role of French women during the Second World War, both those who worked with the resistance and those who collaborated with the Germans. Anne Seba mentions Catherine Dior in that book two or three times, just in passing, but there was enough in there for me to glean that Catherine did work for the French resistance and that she was captured by the Nazis and deported to Ravensbrück and that she's one of the very lucky few who survived that dreadful experience at that concentration camp and that her work for the resistance had been so important that she was awarded a Légion d'honneur by the French and a Croix de Guerre and also the British awarded her as well because of her work with the resistance. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, she was so heroic. She risked her life, quite literally, for freedom and nobody has ever heard of her. And But we all know about Christian, her brother, who, you know, made beautiful dresses, whereas really, arguably, Catherine is probably the more heroic of the two Dior siblings. And so the moment I read about her in that book, I knew that I wanted to include her in a story somewhere down the track. And so that was probably in about maybe early 2017 that I read that. And the I always, you know, like an idea to kind of fester in my mind for about six months before I begin seriously researching and writing. So the germ of the parasecret was born from that. It's remarkable that the brother and sister were involved in such different ways because I don't think you could actually be a designer in Paris during the Nazi occupation and and not and to some degree or other become, even if it was reluctant, a, a collaborator. Were they aware of what each was doing in those at, at that time or did they only really discover after the war? Um, Christian was aware of what his sister was doing. So Christian was working for another designer called Lucien Lelong during the war and Lucien was the, um, the head of the Chambre Syndicale de Haute Couture. So he basically um, fought during the war against the Nazis to try to keep the couture industry in Paris. The Germans wanted to move it to Germany. And so Christian was working with Lucien Lelong, who was trying to do his best to save Paris's fashion industry. But he was also aware of what Catherine was doing. He used to let Catherine and her people who were in her resistance group use his apartment for their meetings because it was deemed to be a reasonably safe space for them to meet. It's not on any historical record that I can find how much he knew. I suspect, you know, he would allow her to meet there but wouldn't have known about the details of what she was doing because it was just too risky for anyone in the resistance to tell anyone else about what they were up to in case that other person was was captured and interrogated and then would perhaps give up all the details and put other people's lives at risk. So I suspect that beyond loaning her the apartment, he she wouldn't have told him very much about what she was doing, but that he was aware she was helping in her wonderful way. Yes. It's rather nice to, to learn that he actually named that very famous perfume, Miss Dior, that he launched in 1947 for Catherine, didn't he? Oh, yes, that was so lovely. I mean, he adored his sister. And, I mean, one of the pieces of research that I found when I was um, researching the book was a letter that he wrote to his father in April 1945 when he just heard that Catherine had been released from Ravensbrück and that she was making her way back across to France. And you can see in the letter, you know, how relieved he is because he had written many, many letters during the war, during 1944, to try to get her to try to find out where Catherine was and then to try to have her released from the camp. And they had all been unsuccessful until 
obviously right near the end of the war when things were falling apart for the Germans. So, yes, I think that, you know, his tribute to her is quite lovely, even though the naming of the perfume was actually a bit of an accident, but I think it was a, a happy accident and one that he was very um, proud of in the end because the perfumes are very floral scent and Catherine became a flower seller, in fact, in Paris after the war. One of the other books, I, I am listening to an edition of it called The French Photographer, but I think it also has been published under the title of The Paris Orphan in some different countries, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. It was published in America as The Paris Orphan, um, but everywhere else it's The French Photographer. That one also has the same great combination of, of nitty-gritty and slight sort of flair because you've got a Vogue photographer who goes to Europe as, as a war photographer. And that one also has a real ring of first sources, original sources about it. You mentioned the research that you did, the battle scenes in this one where she gets left hiding in a ditch under an um, assault at one stage really ring very true. Tell me a little about the research that you've done. So for the Paris Sacred or the French photographer? Uh, the French photographer, yeah. For the French photographer, I buried myself basically in all of the different reports written by the female correspondents during the Second World War. Because I was writing about a woman who was a female photojournalist for Vogue, I wanted to read what the females had written at that time about the different things they reported on. And then I sat down and read um, lots of reports from the male correspondents. And it was really interesting to me the quite stark differences between not just the subject matter because, of course, the women weren't allowed near the front line for a very long time and so couldn't report on things like battle, but also the way in which they wrote about um, the aftermath of battle and the details that they would notice. There's a particularly moving piece by a reporter called Iris Carpenter who came upon a town in France that had just been liberated by the Allies and it was left in ruins and out the front of the town there was a, a dead American soldier kind of propped up against a fence, a bunch of geraniums blooming next to him and a, a rabbit hopping across him and she talks about it as being like this dreadful surrealist kind of composition that this poor American soldier had died to liberate a town whose name he would never have even heard of most likely but he'd given up his life for it and it's just those kinds of details in the women's report that I think for me brought home the emotional reality of war over and above the men's which were more typically blow-by-blow blow battle description. But I also made sure I went to Normandy, for instance, and I stood on Omaha Beach, which was a very powerful experience um, for me. And there are many museums through Normandy that were very helpful in the research. There's one dedicated to the paratroopers, for instance, and one of the male characters in the French photographer is a paratrooper and being a non-kind of military person, I didn't know much about what they would do. So being able to wander through an entire museum with all the different artefacts belonging to the paratroopers and the entire story of them, you know, seeing the 80 kilograms of equipment that they would carry as they jumped out of a plane was really a great way for me to learn. I like that visual kind of experience more so than just reading about their experiences in a book. So 
it was, yeah, I always find it's really important to go to the sites that you're going to write about, particularly when you're writing about something like D-Day and, and Omaha Beach, to make sure that you can, as accurately as possible, I guess, convey not just the, the physical setting but the emotions behind that setting. What do also does come through, even when you're talking about it, is a deep affection for France and, and French culture. Where did that spring from? I think that it sprung from me learning the French language in high school for five years. So I took French all the way through high school and, you know, I had a bit of an aptitude, I guess, for the language. And so I fell in love with the language first. And of course, while you're studying French, you do learn a lot about the country. And so I loved all of that. And, you know, one of the first places I went to when I had enough money to backpack around Europe was France. And I just, I loved it you know, in reality as much as I had loved reading about it and learning about it. And so I continued my French language classes and then obviously I worked for a French company. L'Oreal was a French company. So that um, gave me a lot more exposure to, to all things French. And I think the love has just, you know, been literally from being that sort of 13-year-old in high school learning the language and and then everything else that attaches to that. So, yes, I do love France and I was scheduled, in fact, to be there in about two weeks' time, but, of course, that's not happening anymore for, obviously, the reasons of the COVID-19, which, you know, I'll miss visiting there and, and I hope that the situation over there improves for all of them. Yes, you obviously have an affinity for it. Turning to your wider career, perhaps just taking the focus away from the individual books, you've mentioned about your glamorous-sounding career with L'Oreal, and I wonder... Has that helped you with your writing and what ways might it have influenced some of the choices you've made? In a couple of ways, in fact, my second historical novel called Her Mother's Secret was about the birth of the cosmetics industry in sort of the early part of the 20th century and that all came about because of a a bit of an apocryphal story, I guess, that I heard at L'Oreal about the invention of the very first Maybelline mascara, which was the very first sort of mascara ever made. And the story goes that there was a young woman called Mabel and she was wanting to go out on a, she was going out on a date that night and she wanted to look her best. And so she was using what women used at that time in 1917 to darken their lashes, which was lamp black. So like the soot literally from a candle or a lamp. And her brother Tom walked past and he saw her doing this and he said to her, there must be a better way than that. And so he mixed the lamp black up with Vaseline to create this kind of more greasy substance that would adhere better to the lashes. And so from that moment on, mascara was invented and Maybelline became a reality and it was called Maybelline because it was a combination of Mabel's name plus the word Vaseline. I just thought, oh, my God, that's the most amazing story when I heard that at L'Oreal. And so that had obviously been in my mind and wanting to come out and it did in Her Mother's Secret. But also, I guess, on a more practical level, just having worked in marketing for companies like that who do marketing so well has been hugely beneficial because writers are expected to do such a lot of their own marketing these days. And so I enjoy the marketing side of things and, you know, I learned quite a lot about it, which has been very useful to me as a writer to be able to kind of um, employ those techniques in social media, etc. That's right. And did you discover if there was any truth in that apocryphal story? 
Well, it's it's talked about, it's pretty much the first story you hear the minute you start work at L'Oreal and it's talked about with such reverence. It says if it is true and it is circulated on the internet, but, you know, who knows? I, I love to believe that it was true, although I hate the fact that it was a man who invented mascara. I wish it had been Mabel who thought of mixing Vaseline up with the lamp black. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, because you love your female characters to be strong, independent and enigmatic, don't you? I do, I do. (laughs) Look, if there's one thing that you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you would credit as the secret of your success, what would it be? I think just recognising that to write a book you actually have to sit down and write and using any I know that sounds a bit silly but it's using any available space of time to do the writing so many people want to write a book but don't want to do the work of writing a book and for me that really hit home when I had my first child in 2006 and that was the point at which I was writing my very first book and six months after she was born, I realised that I hadn't written a single word in that whole time that she'd been alive. And I could very easily see that uh, things would continue like that. You know, the baby would continue to take up all of my time and all of my energy and that I wouldn't write ever again. And so that very day, I literally decided that every time she went down to have a sleep, I would write. And it wouldn't matter if it was 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever time was available, I would just write. And so that was basically the way I wrote my first few books um, because for at least the first four or five I had kids at home with me and so that was the best and I look I hated it at the time I thought it was this dreadful kind of pressure but looking back it was the best writing training experience I've ever had because it taught me not to waste time because I didn't have time to waste and it taught me that actually it doesn't matter how much time you have if you write any amount of words on any given day that will all add up to being a final polished book at the end of the day. So that's, I guess, my big piece of advice to anyone is don't wait for the muse. The muse will come to you if you make time for it. And actually to write a book, you have to sit down and write. (laughs) That's wonderful. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So Turning to Natasha as reader, you've mentioned about your taste in historical fiction. Tell us a little bit about the books that you've liked to binge read, perhaps in the past and currently. Well, I've always been a big fan of Jane Eyre. That's probably one of my traditional favourites and also have always been a fan of Margaret Outwood. Her book, The Blind Assassin, would be one of my absolute favourite books on my shelf, which, you know, interestingly has that dual or multiple narrative going through it with past and contemporary and newspaper clippings and all kinds of things happening in that book. But more recently, books that I have read and enjoyed have been Gulliver's Wife by another Australian historical fiction author called Lauren Chater, whose um, books I've always loved. I recently read Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. I had been putting it off because of the sheer size of it and I read it and absolutely loved it and could see what all the fuss was about instantaneously. So it's always lovely when you read a much hyped book and enjoy it too. Yes. And another book that I love to recommend to everyone is Cersei by Madeline Miller, which is, it sounds a bit strange. It's a retelling of the the myth of the Greek nymph Cersei, but it's just the most exquisitely written feminist, incredible book that I've come across in a long time. 
And I'm just curious, those books that you picked off your own bookshelf when you were trying to decide what you'd write next, who were some of those authors? So I did reread The Blind Assassin. I also reread A.S. Byatt's Possession, which I have long loved. Ian McEwan's Atonement was another one that I immersed myself in for several days because, again, I've always loved that book, that the twist at the end. There's nothing has punched me in the gut quite as hard as that book did. Yeah, so those are a few of the ones that sat by my side while I was, you know, moping and reading. <laughs> Fantastic. They're all quite literary fiction, aren't they, rather than genre fiction? Yeah, I guess so. Although, I don't know, I guess I don't really, I don't really tend to differentiate it that much. You know, to me, a historical novel is a historical novel and that kind of distinction, I don't know. Mm. I don't follow it as much, yeah. The boundaries between literary and genre are narrowing by the day when you think about people like Kate Atkinson who writes standalones and police procedurals or, or, or mystery thrillers as well. It, it's very much... Absolutely. And her book, A God in Ruins, is another one, in fact, that I had next to me. I adored that book. It's an incredible work of historical fiction. Mm. Look, circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time where you've come from and where you are today, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change looking back? Look, I don't think so. I think that, you know, I mean, it's tempting to say I wouldn't have wasted my time writing that third book and throwing it in the bin, but if I hadn't have done that, then I maybe wouldn't have decided to start writing historical fiction and obviously I can never regret something like that. So I think I probably would want to tell myself that because I, there were many times in the early years particularly where I thought, you know, why am I doing this? I could be earning so much more money working in marketing and I would be wearing much nicer clothes as well. I wouldn't be sitting around in my, you know, tracksuit bashing away the keyboard. And so there were moments when I, I really thought that it wasn't worth continuing because it does take a number of years to really start earning anything that could be called money from writing. And so maybe I would just look back at that version of myself and just reassure her that, yes, it was worth continuing and just to be patient and, you know, the rewards do come in the end, if, so long as you're doing what you love, which I was. Yes, and look, there was, there's been a question at the back of my mind, you mentioning sitting around in tracksuit pants. Have you ever managed to buy a Dior? I, I do have a 1970s Dior. That's about as early as I can afford. <laughs> um, it's, I've, I've got this one amazing um, website called First Dibs, which is where um, vintage clothing, you can, you can go online and buy it. And there are some incredible early 1950s Dior pieces on there, but they're all like $30,000. So I think it's going to be a little while before I can afford to add one of those to my collection. But that would be my ideal dream to just find one somewhere that someone's vastly underpriced and to just snap it up. Particularly something that Dior himself had designed, so between 1947 and 1957. Yeah, that's my, my one um, writing dream. <laughs> It's a motivator to keep you writing bestsellers, That's isn't it? Right, yes. <laughs> so what is next for Natasha the writer? What are the projects that you've got on at the moment and sort of looking into the rolling over into 2021? So for 2021, I'll have another book coming out. It has a working title of The Riviera House. I'm not entirely sure what it will really be called when it's published. That's coming out in September 2021, which is a 
different publication date for me. Normally my books come out in April, but we're moving into that kind of pre-Christmas slot, which is great for me because it's quite challenging to write a long work of historical fiction each year. And so having 18 months between books is just a bit, I needed a bit of a break and a bit of a relax. So that's been quite lovely. But that book, um, we're working on the edits for that now. So it's, you know, really in its final phases. And so I'm also playing around with the first draft of a book for 2022, which is proving to be quite a lot of fun. And I'm enjoying that a lot. (laughs) So there's books for at least a couple more years yet. And the one that's coming out next year, can you give us any hints about the, the, the time frame and the setting? Is that also World War II and Europe? Sure, it is World War II. So this is about another incredible woman who, I, again, I first read about in Anne Seber's book, Les Parisiennes, and I thought she deserves a story of her own. And so I'm loving the fact that I'm kind of unearthing her from the um, bowels of history and hopefully bringing her back to people's attention. So it is that... The historical storyline is set all in Paris during the Second World War and there's also a contemporary storyline in that book which is mostly set on the French Riviera in a beautiful town called saint John cap ferrat So it was quite lovely to immerse myself in that book and imagine myself in that gorgeous Riviera town for the entire duration of the writing. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Here's hoping that it won't be too long before you'll be able to go back to to France. Yes. <laughs> By 2021, probably. Yeah. Look, it's been great talking. I'm sure that your readers love to contact you. Where can they find you online? They can find me all over social media, pretty much. Mostly I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Natasha Lester Author. So that's probably the best place to come and find me. Um, and also my website is just natashalester.com.au if they want to find out more specifically about any of my books. Do you have much interaction with your readers? I do. I love my readers. They are the shining moments of joy in a day where the writing just seems really tough because they just are constantly sending me beautiful messages, having read The Paris Secret and writing to tell me how much they loved it. And I just adore receiving those because they really do lift you up at times when you often need it. So I'm incredibly lucky to have a very... um, but big loyal readership who loves to to chat and get me through my writing process. <laughs> That's beautiful, it is. Well, I think that that covers it all beautifully. We've run out of time, so thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. 
Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.